you to be a serum donor to like be able to okay give shots to other people to have a community mem water chaos mighty blood oh Oh, I love your law. I meditate on it all day. Commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are never with me. Ever. Ever. They are ever with me. Correct. Thank you. Not the enemies. The <laughs> commands. I have more insight than any than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from evil path, so that I might obey your word. I have not from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Okay, Sergio says we are live. Thank you, Sergio. Let's see here. We have, um, I got a, I had some prayer requests and I haven't had time to write them down. I only got a, one or two. Let's see, David in Oregon. As labor breathing has gone through many tests, he was laid off as a tile setter and has not found suitable work. We want to keep him in prayer. I got an email from Becky in Colorado who's asking for prayer. She's stressed about an issue in her life. And Vic, who is here on Sundays, he uh, has COVID. And so I don't know if he's in New York. He went up to see his brother. So I don't know if he's in New York or if he's down here. I don't know if you got it flying or, you know, I, I have no idea, but uh, keep Vic in prayer and uh, it's going around. Uh, let's see here. Okay, well, we got that. We'll go ahead and pray and then we'll read that. Heavenly Father, you heard the uh, prayer requests and you know that there are others that I did not write down. Lord, uh, we just ask that you be with the people that uh, you know are having troubles or trials or financial difficulties and sicknesses. And Lord, we just... Uh, it's a difficult world, and it's getting much, much more difficult by the day, it seems. People are being denied proper treatment, and they're being... Lord, we just pray for these people. We thank you for the opportunity to do so, and we know that you do here. And we also pray for this class, and we pray that you will bless our time together, and uh, that if anything is not correct, that you would would uh, have us changed, that it would be brought to us and alerted to us so that we would not teach something wrong. Your word is far too precious to be mishandled in any way. So we ask this, that uh, you will be glorified in this class, and we certainly pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's see here. We have uh, 19 September is day. I'm sorry, 16. 19 is Sunday. Um, September 16th, what makes a religious person cruel? Thomas de Torquemada had good religious genes. Born in Spain in 1420, he was the nephew of a prominent cardinal. After entering a Dominican monastery, Torquemada was made prior of another monastery and subsequently was appointed confessor to King Ferdinand II and Queen Isabella best known for sponsoring Christopher Columbus. In 1163, Pope Alexander IV had encouraged princes and bishops to imprison heretics and confiscate their property. It was Pope Gregory IX who, beginning in 1231, set up a special church tribunal called, anybody? The Inquisition for Combating Heresy. 
No nation during this period was more interested in keeping the Catholic faith pure than Spain. Prodded by Queen Isabella, Pope Sixtus IV authorized the Spanish Inquisition in 1478. In 1483, Tocamada was appointed the Spanish Grand Inquisition Inquisitioner. In let's see here, and uh, he set up tribunals with such effectiveness that they lasted for three centuries. Tocamada became the most powerful person in Spain after the king and queen. In 1487, persecution was leveled against Spanish Muslims called Moors and Jewish and Muslim converts to Christianity who were suspected of duplicity. The conversion of the Muslims and the Jews to Christianity had been forced in almost all cases. The Inquisition in Spain began by offering heretics the Edict of Grace, a period of 30 to 40 days in which heretics could identify themselves and, on their confession, be assured of a pardon. The catch was that those who confessed their heresies, called penitents, were forced to take a vow to reveal other heretics. The grounds for arrest was accusation. Sounds like America today. Just about. The grounds for arrest was accusation by another or even mere rumor. A person was assumed to be guilty until proven innocent. Once arrested, prisoners were placed in a secret prison and allowed no contact with the outside world. They could not know their accusers' or witnesses' names, nor were they given access to documents relating to the case. Witnesses for the accused could be only Orthodox Catholics, and no relative up to the fourth generation was allowed to testify. The charges could be for the slightest deviation from Catholic practice, even saying that the Virgin Mary herself was not, and her images, even saying that the Virgin Mary herself and not her images affected cures. Even when there was sufficient testimony from others to convict the accused, the victims were still tortured to extract a confession and to gain names of additional heretics. The two primary tortures were water torture and the garouche. In, let's see here, in the first, prisoners were tied to a rack, their jaws were held open, linen cloth forced down their throat, and then up to eight quarts of water slowly poured down their throat. In the garouche, weights were attached to the feet, and the person was suspended so that only the toes touched the ground. From the beginning, the primary means of execution was burning. The tribunal established at, I can't pronounce that, some Tuadad Real, I guess, in 1483, burned 52 heretics in two years. When the when the Inquisition moved to Toledo in 1485, 750 penitents were marched into the cathedral to be told that one-fifth of their property had been confiscated. Next to the tribunal went to Avila, where 75 were burned at the stake and 26 corpses were exhumed and burned. And so it went. King Ferdinand was the greatest supporter of Tokamata. It was with great delight that he witnessed many of the burnings, seeing each as an advancement of his Catholic faith. In 1492, the conquest of the Muslim Moors in Spain became almost complete with the fall of Granada. Six months later, King Ferdinand ordered all Jews to leave Spain, but nearly half remained as forced converts. By the time of Tocamada's death in September 16, 1498, 2,000 heretics had been executed under his authority. The great irony is that Tocamada died hiding the fact that he himself had Jewish blood. 
The Inquisition was one of the cruelest institutions in human history. It tortured and murdered in the name of Jesus. How do you explain that? What does it teach about human nature, about religious commitment? What can you personally learn from these sordid events? And they cite Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The human heart is most deceitful and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? I can explain it. Yeah. They weren't Christians. They weren't Christians. They got away from this. They got it. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's exactly. That's how you explain it. You get away from the Word of God. You get into church and pomp. And, and yeah. You just you lose your grounding. You lose your footing. And off you go. All right, let's see here. We are in Ephesians chapter 5, and we are starting in verse 3 today. So Back you... up and start the paragraph yep. of chapter 5, which is verse 1. Be imitators of God, therefore, and dearly beloved children, live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 3. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Huh, completely different. I'm sure. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Completely wow. differently. Yeah. Majorly different. Let's see here. 5-3. The verse begins with, but, at least mine does. Mine does, too. Okay, well, that's the only words it's the same, then. Uh, Let's see here. It's a contrast to being imitators of God, walking in holiness, and being acceptable, offering, and sacrifice to God. In contrast to those things, we are warned against fornication and all uncleanness. Paul's words. Before I go on, I want you, while I'm reading this, tell me what the uh, copyright date on your, that's the NIV, right? Yeah. Yeah, let me know what the, the, copyright date is on that particular one. All right, so um, fornication is sexual intimacy, which is outside of the bonds of marriage. This is connected to all uncleanness. Again, Paul's words. It is a general reference to life's impurities and anything that a man could pursue, which would otherwise defile himself. Such things are to be considered in the same light as fornication. Actually, the only sex that's authorized in the whole Bible is, you know, between a man and a woman who are who is his wife. So, anyway, it's a general reference to life impurities, all uncleanness. Along with that, he includes the words or covetousness. In using or instead of and, he places covetousness in a distinct class. And yet, it is closely associated with fornication and uncleanness. Covetousness indicates a desire for more and more. It demonstrates eyes that are never satisfied with what they have and an attitude which is insatiable towards self-gratification. I was thinking about that just today on a different level is that when we get hungry, we eat and then we get full. And then it's in no time at all that we're hungry again. And it's the same thing with whatever. You know, we get our paycheck, and as soon as we get it, we want next week's paycheck. There's never an end to the things that we desire. And there is a point where that never-ending cycle becomes more important than the fact that we are just benefiting from it. In other words, it becomes something that consumes us. And I think that's probably the area where covetousness would take over is when you're not satisfied with what you have it's fine to 
want your next meal. You're hungry after eating, you know, a couple hours later, and you say, well, I can't wait for my next meal, or I can't wait for my next paycheck, or et cetera. But once you start letting that consume you, and that's all you think about, it's a real, you know, I mean, there are times where maybe it doesn't consume you, but it's something that you unhealthily want. I don't know what the uh, the dividing line of that is, but it's natural to have desires. It's natural to have appetites. But at the same time, we really have to be careful to not let them govern us. Once again, I don't know, you know, at what point you would say, well, this is just inappropriate. You know, if there's something that you really like to eat, and you go and have it for a snack three times a day in between your regular meals. I, I don't know, you know. I, I think it goes to... Uh... If you're uh, obese, like well, that. that's true. To an unhealthy level, if you take anything to an, what's the old saying? Everything in moderation. In moderation. There you go. So as long as you're you're taking things in moderation, you're not letting them consume you. Then you know, I don't know, but you know, people will disagree with that. You get monks that are in monasteries and they eat, you know, a bowl of soup in the morning at four o'clock and nothing again until nine o'clock at night, and they have another bowl of soup, and that's too much, and you're overdoing yourself. I mean, it's just, it, it all just depends on what your world perspective is, but there has to be a balance in your mind that you are keeping God first, being grateful for what you have, and not letting the thing consume you. And like I say, this was just a thought that I was thinking while I was working, and that guy almost came through the wall. You almost got taken out, literally. I mean, he just, he had to back off of the, uh, off of the uh, sidewalk. That, that was crazy. Anyway, the connection between the two is obvious, speaking of covetousness and uh, the other self-gratification. Um, fornication and uncleanness are things we are actively participating in which defile us. They are acts of self-gratification being fulfilled, but covetousness is a state of mind for more of the same. It is the mental state that, uh, that what I am being filled with is insufficient. Remember the, uh, the term gluttony. Okay, mm -hmm. gluttony, do you know where that actually came from, what they used to do in the Roman and Greek empires? Oh, they would eat until they threw up. Eat, and then they would make themselves throw up. Right. Yeah, and then they go and eat more. I mean, there, there was no end to their eating because they would throw up what they had, and that they would go and eat more. And that, that is the basis for gluttony. You know, obviously, now we just say anybody just keeps eating and eating, and he doesn't have to go out and, and throw it up. But Bulimia. Yeah, bulimia. Well, that's the opposite there. That's just... Anyway, um, so we have a, they are acts of self-gratification being fulfilled, but covetousness is a state of mind for more of the same. It is the mental state that says, I am being filled with, what I am being filled with is insufficient. Therefore, I will go after more in an attempt to find satisfaction. Such things show that we do not place God in the center of our minds, but rather is pushed out of them in order to make room for that which is in opposition to him. And because of this, Paul says, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for the saints. Not only are we to abstain from such things, but we are not to even discuss them. They, the very mention of such things spurs inside of us sparks of desire, which can quickly lead to action in an attempt to fulfill them. Instead, we are to be thankful for what we have, praising the Lord for his grace and edifying of our fellow Christians through an acknowledgement of his hand in our lives. In everything, give thanks. In everything, be joyful. You know, have gratitude for the things that you do have and share what you have. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that we can do without being uh, inappropriate in our actions, but 
like I said, there's a point where things can get out of hand and we might not even realize that it's happening because we start getting consumed with the things around us. You know, some people are the old shopaholics. They just go out and they buy stuff and they just buy stuff and they buy stuff and it becomes almost an obsession to have certain things. And, you know, you have to be careful, especially in today's world where you can be online and you see something, you just click a button and you buy it and then you think, oh, I felt good. I'm going to do it again. And next thing you know, you got a house full of stuff of, unopened packages so i don't know it just we got to be careful with our actions in this life and uh, you know just the main thing is as paul says to be content what did he say with food and with clothing yeah, much of it little of it oh yeah yeah but he's saying situation. with that we will be content that's right just just the the basics in life and we should be content and that's hard for us to imagine especially in the u.s where we have houses we've got all kinds of food in a refrigerator they didn't have refrigerators back then they might have had something they kept stuff fresh in but it wasn't a lot of stuff you know they we have a freezer for ice cream we've got uh cars we've got maybe two cars or some people have three cars whatever and they can rotate them around you've got air conditioning i was thinking another thing just probably at the same time is that here we are in florida and, you know, the economy is bound to collapse. It's just, it's inevitable. With the guys running the show right now, it's like they purposefully want it to. And when the economy collapses, uh, how are, are we going to have power? Are we going to be like um, Venezuela that rotates power, you know, three hours for you, one at, once every two days or something? I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. But people that live in Florida right now aren't like people that have lived in Venezuela where they may have had one air conditioner in a room and the rest of the house is on air conditioned. I know because I lived in Malaysia where we had a house like that. And here we no longer build houses to accommodate the weather. If you look at all of the old houses in Florida, they all are built to accommodate the weather. They've got screens, they've got windows that are situated so that the air will pass through based on the prevailing winds. They've got eaves that overhang the house. They've got, you know, uh, just everything was built to accommodate the weather so that you might be uncomfortable when it's 4,000 degrees out, but you could live through it. Nowadays, we don't have that. And when the ball drops, people may be dropping like flies. And there's going to be a lot of discontented people because of it. So, the what? Yeah, Edison's place. Perfect example. And you know how they got that there? Edison and Ford both? Everything, when I was a kid, everything went down Sarasota Bay, the intercoastal. There, I don't know, you weren't here. You weren't here that long. When, how long have you been here, here. in Sarasota? Oh, since 75. Okay, so you probably remember. Uh, I-75 didn't exist, and you had US-41. But did you know that uh, all the big shipping went down the bay? There were barges all day long, every single day that went down the bay. We'd see, you know, 25 a day. And we just took it for granted that was what we saw. And if they had, like... Uh, war material like tanks going south, you'd see the tanks with shrouds over them and the, the tank, you know, the uh, gun hanging out the end. But, you know, there was no I-75 with where the big rigs go and you couldn't get the big rigs down 41. And so everything went down there. But when Edison and Ford's house was built, it went down there and then they went up that river to get to there and they just unloaded it and built the houses. And He's from Jersey. Yeah, well, yeah, from Jersey. But there are actually houses in Sarasota that... Um, uh, there's one right over on, um, off of, um, let's see here, Swift and close to Riverview High. These people were up north and they cut down all the trees on the lot that they were living in. They turned it into a raft and they floated all the way down to Sarasota. 
they took it up the Philippi Creek and they built the house out of the raft, all of the wood they had ready. So they just planed out the wood and built the house. And it's got like 40 different types of trees that you can't find anywhere in Florida. And some of them don't exist up north anymore. But here, this house is made of that because that's how they built it. Anyway, um, everything was built in a way that accommodated the life at the times. And what I'm saying is that we're so used to having so much that when we get to the point that Paul speaks of, people aren't going to be able to accept it. I mean, the Christians that, that are, oh, I love Jesus and I'll follow him through everything. I wonder how many of them will actually stick to their guns and that and say, I'm going to follow him because I'm grounded in the word. I mean, we just have to be because we don't know what's coming. We have no idea what it might be like. And so with food and with clothing, with that, we will be content. That's the attitude we should have because it's very easy to get our lives so tied up in things that they become, they consume us. You know, not trying to disappoint anybody, but we don't know what's coming. We have to be ready for it. Anyway, I don't know what got me off on that tangent other than the fact that Paul says we should be content with very little. Anyway, life application. The admonitions of Scripture come to us from the hands of men guided by the Holy Spirit. God created us, and he knows exactly what is best for us in our lives. These admonitions, exhortations, and commands are for our benefit. Sexual immorality may seem like it's a-okay, it's fun, it's whatever, but in the end, nobody goes unscathed in such a relationship, ever. It doesn't happen. We might think it does, but it does not. It affects everybody negatively. We have been saved through Christ. What God would have us do are those things that a caring father knows are best for us. All right. And having said that, you know, people will ask me questions about cultures and why aren't certain cultures doing well? Uh, you know, what is the secret to the success in America? And my answer has always been the same, is that we have a, even for non-believers, it has always been a country where there has been a nuclear family. There's been a father, a mother, and children. People uh, were respectable to each other. We, you know, didn't denigrate each other, even if we didn't like them. And, but the main thing was the nuclear family and the values of that were instilled in the children. And that's the biblical model. And if you look at countries where that does not exist, then there is a problem with that society. And it just is that way. It, it does not function properly. There's uh, anger, there's war, there's, you know, death. There's, it's, it, it's just inevitably that way. And now you know that America has gotten away from that. The seminary, uh, not the seminaries, the colleges, even high schools downplay that. They talk about how, the, you know, sex is okay, you don't need to be married and all these things. And we are ruining the foundation of our country by getting away from what our Father would have for us. God knows what's best. He's given us the example in Scripture, and if we can live by that, we will prosper. And if we don't, we will not. And very quickly, things are changing in this nation because of that. We're getting away from the Word. And as I said, even people that were not religious still fell into the greater umbrella of that because they saw that it worked. All of a sudden, get rid of the religion, then we'll find something else and it will not work. So it's a sad situation. Oh, going back, as soon as I-75 went in, Burke, as soon as it did, literally within a year, we never see barges go down the bay anymore, ever. I've seen one this year, one all year long, okay? 
Um, we had one last year as well, and they're so not used to going down the bay that the one that went down the bay last year, remember, he got stuck on the sandbar right across from us. He was there for a couple of days. They couldn't get the thing off because they don't know where the sandbars are. They, you know, they the tug masters used to go up and down here every day for, uh, you know, probably a month or two, then take a month off. And so they, they knew the waters. They don't now. So it's it's a sad situation, but I-75 is the new thing and everything goes down the highway. So. That was the point I was making about that. Anyway, five four. Okay, first, the NIV copyrights. The uh, what's the, the oldest? I mean, the newest one that you see. Newest one is two thousand and three. Okay, and that's good. I always tell people um, they ask a lot. I get this question a lot. What Bible do you recommend? So uh, we'll talk about that. Just in, it'll save me an email because somebody might say, "Well, you didn't answer the question," and I want to know. Um, there's no Bible that I actually recommend above one above another, okay? I always use the New King James Version for studies, for commentaries, and for sermons. And the reason why is because I just want to be consistent. It was the Bible that I happened to have at the time that I started preaching out on the beach. As a matter of fact, the, the Bible, the pages were flying out of it, and Tom walked up to me one day and said, here, you need a new Bible. So uh, I retired it, but... Um, that's why I use the New King James Version, not because I think it's any better. The King James Version has all kinds of errors, but the New King James Version came in and took care of those, and then they introduced their own errors. So it, it's uh, you're just going to find that. Um, as far as Bibles, if you want uh, just a real quick talk about that, uh, the New King James Version is a good translation. It's you know uh, respectable uh, British English. It's not the old these and thous of the King James Version, and it's, it's a good version. Okay, um, the next one is the NASB, New American Standard Bible. That's based on the NAS, which is an older version where uh, the NAS used to have these and thys and thous. It was American English, but it was a little older, and the NASB uh, updated that. It's a very literal translation and because of that, it can be a little bit rigid at times. But if you don't mind that, it's it's literal. It's a good translation. It's based on a different source text than the New King James Version. Okay, so you've got the Alexandrian text. You've got the Byzantine text. Um, uh, if you want the most literal translation that you're going to find, I've always recommended Young's literal translation. But the problem is it's it's very hard to read. It's almost stuffy in its old English, but it's very, very literal. Well, not too long ago, um, the Bible site that I use for the sermons, BibleHub.com, added into their list of Bibles the literal standard version, LSV. And I hadn't heard of it before, but I can see what they have done is they have taken the Young's literal translation and they have made it less stuffy, basing it on modern English. And because it is word for word the same as Young's in many cases. So I know that's what they did. They took Young's and they have updated it to modern uh, terminology. And so the LSV is something, the next time I get a Bible, which I'm getting close on my night reading Bible, I'm going to get rid of that, which is the old NAS, and I'm going to get the LSV because I want to read that. Um, but that's a good Bible to have. Uh, the NIV. You know, people will dismiss the NIV, and uh, it's it's not a bad translation at all. It is uh, that you have what's, there's a difference between what's called literal translation. That would be like almost word for word, as close to the original as you can get. 
then you have what's uh, basically a free-flowing translation. I can't think of the uh, terminology that you would, you would use. It's not a paraphrase, but it's way over here. And it would be, oh, a thought-for-thought -thought translation. Instead of word-for-word, -word, sometimes you need to have a thought-for-thought -thought translation because words don't really translate properly sometimes from Hebrew or Greek into English. Well, in between there, they call this a dynamic equivalence. It's literal when it needs to be. It's thought for thought when it needs to be. And that's the way they base their translation in the NIV. The NIV has great uh, qualities. That one's, yes, that one is the one I like. Sometimes you'll see a Bible like this, and it reads from here down, and then from here down, and then from here down, then from here down. And most Bibles do that, but the NIV didn't do that, at least on the one that I had. It was all just written like a book. And I really, really liked that. It made it very easy for me to grasp things that I could not get when I was first reading the Bible. So the NIV did that. They also do something. Instead of writing out 4,527, like the King James and the New King James does, they just write 4, 2, 5, 7. They just give you the numbers. And so your mind will pick it up differently. So when you're reading, you know, 603,550 men in Israel that are in the census, well, that's a lot of words. But when you see it in the NIV, it's just a short number, 603,550 men. And so that, that will help you to process if you process numbers that way, which I do. Um, uh, on and on. I could give you a lot of good pluses about the NIV. But when people ask me, you know, do you think the NIV is a good translation? I say yes, until 2004. After that, I would not buy a NIV that is later than a 2004. Don't get me wrong. You can get them all the way back into the 90s that are in absolutely perfect condition. You can go to a bookstore and you can find, you know, a, a 2002 edition, which looks brand new because somebody was given it. They never read it. And then they took it into bookstore. I'll tell you that in just a second. I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. So the uh, uh, NIV don't go past 2004, and the reason why is because they started to go politically correct. It used to be that the NIV took the standard approach of translation, and everything in the Hebrew and everything in the Greek is masculine. It doesn't matter if there are 300 women in a room and one man, it will always be in the masculine. It's only in the feminine if there's only women being addressed. Otherwise, they just make the masculine, and it just simplifies the language. Well, the there's no reason to change the translation except political correctness. Okay, if a translation came out today and they went in that direction, I wouldn't be opposed to it. But when they purposefully change their translation to update it for accommodation, I will no longer recommend it. So no new NIVs. I don't recommend it. Brothers and sisters and all that kind of stuff, it's nonsense. Okay, Paul says, brothers, stick with it. They, they should have just stuck with it and they would be still recommend it, but I don't. Um, Steve, yes. The earliest copyright, 74. Or some, yeah, 74. So it started way back, way back. That's right. But that was in way, way back. Well, no, I like know, but back. for it's us, like... it was it was quite a ways. And, oh, the other thing about the NIV is that it is new international version. The re reason why they call it that is because it is international English. It's something that you can pick up and it's standard. That's correct. And so people in Singapore will read it and they'll get it. People in England England will read it and they'll get it. it the idea is that um, it's like the airplane Bible. 
And the reason why I say that is because when you land at a commercial airport anywhere in the world, the pilot always speaks English. English. It doesn't matter where in the world you go, the language for the pilot landing in a commercial airport will always be English. It's an international language. Okay. It's not very, it's not very English, but yes. Anyway, and so this Bible does that. It's like the accommodating the whole world so that you can talk to somebody about it in Africa or in Asia and say, well, this is, and you'll be able to have a conversation with that standard English. And I like that. Whereas this is more British English, like I said. Um, it doesn't make that much difference, but it does make a little bit of difference, okay? But it's a very, very easy read Bible. It was the first one that I really read. My mom gave it to me. I've got it in the back here. Uh, she gave it to me, and uh, I probably read that 200 times from cover to cover before I changed. I, it is the, the pages are just gross from the oil in my fingers, but um, uh, thousands of little notes in there, and it was just a great read and very easy. But uh, the Life Application Bible is a good Bible. It's, I don't have any problem with it. It's easy to read. I don't know about the literalness of it because I've never read it as a, one of my Bibles. Maybe one of these days I'll pick that up and read it as well. But like I say, every time I finish a Bible, I just finished the uh, ESV and I gave it to Lynn here. I'll, I'll take it now and I'll just give it away and I'll go buy another Bible because I want to change. That is what I recommend to people, not one version, okay? The whole conversation here was to get you to understand various versions, but what I recommend is that you read one Bible in the morning and one Bible at night. And I've had two people in the past month ask about reading the Bible, or one person took my advice about how to read the Bible. She's in Africa, very nice young lady, has been emailing me. Uh, she's on fire for the word, and she said, I, I kind of felt intimidated by reading the Bible. And she said, during one of your sermons, she said, if you just read it 30 minutes a day, you'll be done in 154 days. And she said, challenge accepted, and she's going through it, right? Well, somebody emailed me a day ago, and they asked the same thing. He said, I'm kind of intimidated. I don't know what to do. And I said, just pick it up and take bites. You don't have to read it all in one day. You don't have to remember the whole thing. Just read 30 minutes a day. But what I recommend is read one in the morning and one at night. When you finish, not if you do, but when you do, maybe read it one or two more times if you're not familiar with it, and then set it aside, buy another Bible, and read that one. And you will get a better idea of what is going on in Scripture the more versions you read. You read the NASB, don't you? What did you think about the ESV? Oh, it was okay, but the ESV, it has a definite Reformed theology bent in it. When you get to Daniel 9, where it speaks of the, uh, you know, the timeline and all that, it's different, okay? It's, it, you can tell when somebody has a presupposition about something. Okay, the way that they are going to translate something is going to be in there. It may not be real heavily, but you can just tell the difference. Uh, you don't have that ESV here, do you? Yeah. No, here, bring that here. And we'll get back into Ephesians in just a minute. But this is, this is something that I think is pretty important. So let me, uh, let me read Daniel 9, 24 through 27 to you. Okay, this is the ESV and Daniel. Okay, this is a nice Bible. It's just a... Oh, it's small. It's easy to get around. I, you know, when I went to uh, Boulder, the Bible that I'm reading now is the complete Jewish Bible. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's Messianic Christians that translated it. And the reason why I'm reading it is because Chris had it. She bought it at a store for a dollar or something. And it has the NIV on one side and the Jewish Bible on the other side. Well, I've read the NIV, so I'm just reading the Jewish Bible. And what they do with the Jewish Bible is they will 
take words that they are, as Jewish people, familiar with, that they would use in their daily life. Like, instead of saying uh, the Pentateuch, they will say the Torah. And, or, and when it says law, which the word law is Torah, instead of saying law, they will say Torah. And uh, mitzvot, they will use the word mitzvot, the commandments, okay? Because that's the way they will talk in their house. They have certain words that, even though they're English, they will use those words. Well, that's what they've done. And so, uh, Jesus. well, I, I haven't got to the New Testament yet, but they probably say Yeshua. That's yeah. my guess. And so, um, but they, uh, they, all of these words, like, they don't say leprosy. They use the word sa'arat. And so that's what they would speak in the house. Oh, you got sa'arat, okay? So they will put that in there. Will, they have, will, they, will it have the New Testament in it? Oh, yeah, oh, because these are Messianic believers. Oh, Yes, oh, okay. so it's called the Complete Jewish Bible, and then they have their, their and I'm just reading it just to see their perspective. I'm not one of these, you know, I, I, I'm completely opposed to Hebrew roots. And some people will say, well, this is better because it says this word in Hebrew. That's a what? dumb argument, you know, but anyway. And another thing that they do, which is kind of nice with the complete Jewish Bible, is uh, they all of the names, every single name of a place or a person is as it would be in Hebrew. And so when you're reading it, you actually, you know, it's a little harder to to remember who is that speaking of because it's it's well. Here's an example in Hebrew: the name of Gaza is not Gaza; it's Aza. I don't know why we put a G on it. But when you're reading it, it says Aza, and you think, where, where's Aza? I don't even remember reading that. Well, you go to the NIV, and you say, oh, Gaza, okay? So it, it's got some interesting qualities to it, but it's more like a paraphrase. It's not a real close translation. One of the things that they do in it is instead of I do not believe, they will say, I don't believe. They, they use contractions, which I've never seen in any Bible. I mean, it's just not, you know... Bibles are normally more precise, yeah. and they'll say things that are kind of, you know, not that way. But it's interesting. I'm having fun with it. I'll be done with it in, you know, maybe two, three months, and then I'll give it to one of you if you want it. Um, but um, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Let me, let me open this one and this one, and I'll read you some differences, and you'll see, you'll be able to see that there's... It. No, no, I just want, don't want to lose my place there. So we got Lamentations, Ezekiel, and... Whoops, too far. Got to get to Daniel. All right, there we are. And then you'll just see, I'm, I'm just going to read you 24 through 27. And let me see. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to see up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. That's 24. And this one says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, this one says vision and prophecy, uh, and to anoint a most holy place. Instead of in, instead of saying, and to anoint the most holy, they say, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay? Um, and then they had a couple of articles, like the transgression, this one's, oh, it does say that there. Okay, 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And this one says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, this one says, um, uh, yes, to the coming of an anointed one. And? Yes, an, a prince. Oh. There shall be seven weeks. 
Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. So there's a little bit of a difference there. They're making maybe some presuppositions. Um, I don't know which one is more literal. I would have to sit down and do that. It's been a long time since I've looked at Daniel 9 in the Hebrew, and I don't remember. But verse 27 is, I think, the one that's the most. We'll do 26 right now. And after these 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, uh, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there should be war. Desolations are decreed. This one says, this is the New King James Version, and after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The New King James Version presupposes that this is speaking of the Lord. Okay, this is a prophecy about them. They don't give you that hint here. They just say an anointed one will be cut off. That may not be a presupposition. It just may be that they're trying to translate it the way they think is proper. But there's no doubt that this is speaking of Christ. There's no doubt. And so what the New King James Version has done, and most versions that have a dispensational theology will do, is to say we understand that this is speaking of the Messiah. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, uh, uh, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with the flood. And till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Okay, so those are kind of close, except the parts about Messiah. Now, verse 27 is the one that's a little uh, more off. I'll read the New King James Version first. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. The ESV. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. But, back to the, the uh, New King James Version, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. This one says, um, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. Back to the New King James, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. This one says, and, um, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. So this one is saying, uh, that's close. Um, New King James Version, even until the consummation which is determined. This one says, uh, where is that? Um, desolate. Where? Uh, hang on. Offering on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured on the desolator. This one says, until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So you can see it's taking... It's just taking a different approach, and I would say personally that this is because it has a reform theology bent, and so they're saying that this is obviously, you know, something that is, you know, uh, the church has replaced Israel. This isn't a future prophecy, etc. So, it, and you'll see that in other areas. It's just Daniel nine happens to be a little more uh, evident because there's no doubt that this is speaking about the Messiah, and then it is speaking about a time in the future, which is the end times, the final seven years, the tribulation, whereas they don't think that, okay, because it's pointing to Israel, it's not pointing to the church, and so they, they're, they're, it's just their thinking, and once again, you know, we'll see on Sundays quite often when we're translating, I mean, when we're uh, talking about something, oh, we're going to see one this week, remember what the Lord your God did, we're going to see in there, um, uh, Miriam gets leprosy, well, just before that, the verse speaks about, you know, leprosy, okay? 
towards the congregation. And there are actually two possible translations based on the Hebrew, okay? Which one is correct and why? And so I will give both of them, and then I'll tell you which one is certainly correct, and I will tell you why. Now, I don't get dogmatic in the ser sermon. What I do is I say that it's probable that, but there's no doubt that the one that I'm going to tell you about is correct. And the reason why is because it then gives the example of Miriam, okay? It's the same thing with the sermon last week. There was a translation that could have gone one way or another, and I said, here is the reason why, and I defended that, okay? Um, as a matter of fact, I didn't say it in the sermon, and I feel bad about it. Um, when I was going through last week's sermon, which was, uh, what was it, the uh, certificate of divorce. of divorce, yep, I had a question. I knew what was correct already, but I just wanted to get Sergio's opinion. And Sergio said, there is no doubt, there is no doubt that it is saying the woman has defiled herself. It's not saying that it is an abomination. It is saying she is an abomination because she has gone and married another man. And so I, I knew that was correct, but I still went to Sergio and I said, Sergio, what do you think? And he said, there is no doubt. There is no doubt at all what it is saying is that she has become an abomination. And I should have thanked Sergio in the sermon for that, and I didn't, so I'm doing it now. He'll never watch the Bible class because he's probably in bed by now. But um, I feel guilty that I didn't say that because I like to use him as a resource, and I always try to mention when I check something. I just felt bad about it. But he watched that sermon yesterday, and he was so excited. He, was, he usually, you know, he might watch him, he might not, just depending on how busy of a week it is. He was so excited. He says, i got to watch that again, and I've got to watch it with Rhoda. He said, I won't say what he said because I don't make blowing my horn and I'm not going to do that. But he was very, very, and you gave me some compliments too. Thank you for that, Burke. Anyway, so there you go. Bible translation. Yes. The church over on Gant. Gant. Yep. They are. Reform theology. Reform. I went there about six or eight weeks. Yeah. I left out there on Beaver. Yep. And uh, he, he, you know, he, he used the ESV. And, ESV, that's right. And, and I talked to him. And he's the one who told me, he says, I, you know, I used to be just like you, he said to me. Uh, <laughs> and he says, when you get to study more, you'll come over to my side. Absolutely the opposite. And, and, he, and I said, what about the whosoever? I don't know. He's the one who told me, I don't know if I file all those whosoever yeah, are in there. Yeah, well, <laughs> they probably couldn't hear what Burke was saying, but um, he's not only a Reformed theologian, but he's also a, a Calvinist. Okay, he believes that you are regenerated in order to believe. And, Say who he is. Uh, uh, the guy of the church yeah. out there, okay? So he, uh, he uh, what Burke said is that the, that guy said, well, I used to believe he had free will, and when I studied more, I realized that that's not correct. No, he had it trained into him. There's no doubt about it. So Burke said to him one day, he went over and he said, well, how do you explain the whosoevers, which nowadays it's whoever, whoever believes, okay? And he says, well, I can't really answer that. Well, of course you can't. Because whoever means whoever. If you're going to say that you're regenerated in order to believe, whoever does not fit into that theology. So, of course, you can't answer it. But uh, we'll go on from there. I didn't mean to make a long thing about that, but people always ask me about Bible translations. They but do it. What you are saying is exactly what the authors or the translators of the King, King James, James Version says. It's the same thing. That's right. They say, read a multitude of translations to get the best sense. Right in their preface to the King James Version, they refute every single thing that the King James Onlyists teach. They refute it in the preface. And that's why they don't publish that preface anymore. Is because it completely 
completely refutes every single King James only ar argument that they have. Every one of them, without fail. But um, that's correct. They recommend that if you want to be scholarly, you will not stick to one translation, but read a multitude of translations. That's a paraphrase, but it's very close to what they say. So um, that's just my thing on what Bible you should read. Read them all. Just keep reading different Bibles. If you want to keep them and refer to them later, great. If you want to do what Chris does, Chris will read a Bible. She'll highlight it up. She'll make notes in there, and then she'll give it to somebody so that they can read her notes and maybe be you know, inquisitive about something as well. And I've found that when I get a Bible, a used Bible, and it's got notes in it, I want to read every note that the person has written. Sure, I'm just curious. So it, it is a good way of, of handing over a Bible, but I don't do that. I, you know, I, I know what I think, and if I don't think it, I'm going to make a note in my uh, notes, and then I'm going to look at it. I'm not going to go back and read it again in the Bible. I'm just not. And so I'll make a note. I need to think this through. I need to study it, and then I'll go from there. Uh, but anyway, um, okay, we're in 5-4. We'll go on now. Yeah. Nor should there be any obscenity foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. Okay, that's close but different. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. Okay, or giving of thanks. Okay, that's my dyslexia. I'm always putting things backwards. Um, uh, let's see here. What was I going to say about that? Um, oh, yeah, you know, some people will take this to extremes. I was having a conversation with two friends via message, and one of his friends was, what was it that he was doing? Something so innocuous that, and he said, well, you shouldn't do that. That's, you know, that's coarse talking. And, it, you know, he came to me, he said, what do you think about that? <laughs> You'll never have a conversation with somebody if you go to that extent. I mean, ever. So, you know, you have to, you have to be uh, circumspect in what you say, but at the same time, you live your life and you talk with people. If you want to make a joke about something, make a joke, you know, but whatever. Anyway, in the previous verse, which was 5-3, Paul gave several negatives, which Christians are to refrain from in their behavior and conduct. He continues with more negatives, excuse me, he continues with more negatives, which are certainly tied to the all uncleanness of the previous verse. They are filthiness. The Greek word is found only here in the New Testament. It indicates obscenity, indecency, or baseness. Those things in a conversation which are indecent, both in speech and in gesture, are included in this. And, you know, you just go out to any uh, uh, party where they're serving beer, and you'll see lots of that. No doubt about it. People hanging around outside, and they, the more beer they have, the more indecent they get with their words and their gestures, okay? That's what he's referring to. Foolish talking is the next one. The Greek word molologia or morologia is again unique to the New Testament. It is the combination of moros, which think of a moron, okay, and lego indicating speaking. Like you have, um, you know, the logos, okay, the, the means the word, okay. Lego is the same thing. So you've got a moronic speaking, basically, indicating speaking. Thus, it is moronic speech. It gives a sense of speech flowing out of a dull, sluggish heart or mind that lost its edge or grip on reality. This is the talk of fools involving foolishness and sinning together. That's Helps Word Studies definition. What, what did you say? It sounds like our president. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. It does. It sounds like our president. Uh, so after this, he mentions coarse jesting. 
For a third time, a unique word is found right here in the New Testament. All three of these words are only found this one time. Uh, from a compound of eu, u, and a derivative of the base of trope, meaning well-turned. For example, ready at repartee or jocose. These are all old words, so I don't know what most of them mean, but this is old English from Vincent's word studies. Uh, witticism, for example, in a vulgar sense. Ribaldry, jesting. Oh, that's Strong's there. Okay, this would thus give the sense of, this is now Vincent's word studies, polished and witty speech as the instrument of sin, refinement and versatility without the flavor of Christian grace. So there you go with that. Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us that these things are not fitting. Our speech and our actions are to be wholesome and pure, not sensual and unclean. In today's world, where everything seen on the internet is so vulgar, and where a thousand posts a day are viewed by our eyes, which are nuanced with perversion and vulgarity, it is hard, it is a hard thing to distance ourselves from that. And yet, it is what we are called to do. Hence, I left Facebook because one, I didn't want to see that anymore, and two, I didn't want to be dragged down into that cesspool. Okay, I had had enough of it, and the final key wasn't that, it was, you know, him outlawing us saying something, I don't know, Zuckerberg, yeah. something, and I just said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm not going to be, and you did that before I did, you're like, I'm not on Facebook anymore, and I'm like, oh, well, maybe I'll do that someday, and it wasn't long after that I'm like, I'm not on Facebook too, and I ain't going back, so, um, yeah, okay, there you go with that, and it was what we are called to do, uh, instead of these things, we are rather to give thanks, Jameson Fawcett Brown says that the word here has a happy play on sounds in the Greek. Eucharista contrasted with eutropelia, refined, jesting, and subtle humor sometimes offend the tender feelings of grace. Giving of thanks gives that real cheerfulness of spirit to believers which the worldly try to get from jesting. That's Jameson Fawcett Brown. So there you go. We, we try to get this cheerfulness of spirit and we do it in jesting. Okay, uh, before I go on, I just had a thought that um, uh, the book of Acts, I know I said this on Sunday, but some people that listen to these may not listen to the uh, sermons, I don't know, but I want to make sure people know that we are finishing the book of Revelation. I think we did uh, 21.15 today, maybe. I, six more to go. Okay, so we have six more to go. So that means today is Thursday, so that would be next Wednesday we're going to start the book of Acts. And I have to recommend you, I, I usually don't do this. I don't beg people to watch the sermons. I never ask people to watch the sermons. You know, I might hint, well, if this might help you, or if they ask a question, I'll direct them to one. But I'm not one to just say, well, you know, you should start watching the sermons, except during the Prophecy Update, when I don't want them watching 15,000 Prophecy Updates. That's right. unproductive. But I am almost to the point where I want to beg people to follow along in the book of Acts because it is such a pivotal book for people to get. And if they get that, a lot of their bad doctrine is going to go away. I, I'm just certain of it, okay? So I would ask you to make a commitment. It's only 1,007, uh, 1,007 verses. So it'll take 1,007 days. We'll be done in about three years maybe a little less, two and a half years, and when we're done, you will say, I'm glad that I followed the book of Acts. I know you will, so please consider that. Once a day, it'll come up on the website. It's right at the top. It says today, and you click on it, you go down and read it, and um, 
if you ever get behind, you can email me and I'll send you the whole book that we have finished to that point. Okay, and you can just read that and then get back into the regular schedule of following it. But I would ask you this one book to follow along faithfully. Uh, the introduction, usually an introduction for a book. I, I started that maybe 10 books ago or five books ago. I started doing an introduction to the book just to give people an idea of what's going on. And it's usually about a half of a page. Okay, the book of Acts introductions takes three days and they're about three pages long each. It's, it's going to be a very involved book, but you're going to learn proper doctrine. You're going to stop being caught up in nonsense. You really will. Stuff that you thought, oh, I know what the Bible says. Acts will cure you of that if you handle it properly. So please follow along in Acts. I, I know that it will bless you. And, uh, and who doesn't like Acts? Who doesn't like Acts? I'm telling you, what a great book. And, there, you know, there are obviously going to be verses in there that you're not going to get much meat out of because it says, you know, and the ship sank. You know, I'm, that's, I'm just kidding. But, you know, uh, but you know what I'm saying is that um, uh, it, you, I know that you will be benefited by following along with it. Like I say, it's only a, a 1,007 days. You can do that with your eyes closed. So here we go. Life application. Instead of rude... Course talking, we should be speaking words of edification to one another and of praises to God. Instead of fighting in the flesh with our mouths and actions against that which is upright and moral, we should be singing in the spirit. Let us keep this thought at the forefront of our minds, doing our best to speak that which is wholesome, glorifying of God, and edifying of others. And I know that's hard to do. I fail in it 8,722 times every day and many times twice on Saturday. So uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do, but that is what we are being called to do, is to glorify God with our lips and with our hearts and with our lives and with our actions and in every possible way. So there you go with that, and we are on to verse 5.5. Five. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man is an idolater, any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Okay, for this you know that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So it's very close. That's the closest they've come on all of these today. Um, and you know, and obviously you can take this verse out of its context and you can say, see, you're not going to heaven. Okay, but the fact is that if you've called on Christ, you are of Christ and you belong to Christ. Oh, let me say two things uh, exactly on this subject. Um, uh, Brent Spray, who is at the Cowboy Church in Henrietta, Texas, did a marvelous, marvelous sermon on the blessed assurance. Okay, um, he, uh, in other words, defending once saved, always saved, defending eternal salvation. He did a great job on it. He sent it to me uh, this past week. I was, I, I'm embarrassed to recommend it because he closes with. Of citing something that I said, you know, and he gives my real name. I don't know why he didn't put Charlie there, but he gave my real name. So uh, there you go. But it, it, uh, towards the end, he cites me. But so you can just skip after minute 3855. Just turn it off and that'll be fine. But up until then, he did a great job. So if you want to be blessed by a really good sermon on eternal salvation, go to the Cowboy Church in Henrietta, Texas on YouTube, and Blessed Assurance is the video. And that goes with exactly what I was just talking about here, is that you can take a verse out of Scripture and say, well, you're obviously not saved because, but if you go down to verse 8, for you were once in darkness. He was saying that you did these things, and you know you may go back into them, but now you, at least you know the difference, and you are of the light. And Paul will do that. He'll give 
something and then he'll say, but you were washed, but you were cleansed. So even if you're doing these things, you are cleansed from them. You just shouldn't be doing them. And that's why we're getting this doctrine right here. The second thing I wanted to say, I've gotten many, many, many people, a lot of people that have emailed me and thanked me for the little one or two or three minute sections of these Bible studies that I've done. I have nothing to do with that, okay? Mary, who attends online, she lives down in Naples and she's been up here a few times. Mary sends me the video and she says, I want you to do a video from minute 4823 to minute 56, okay? And I cut that out and I do it. Whatever she wants, that's what she gets. So I, all I do is the physical work to get them out to you, but she has done that. And I want to thank her. That's a great thing that she's doing because so many people have sent thank yous. They say, sometimes there's a lot of information. I don't get it all, but I can listen to these throughout the day and I get it. And then some people will listen to them two or three times like, oh yeah, I I, I want to process that again. So uh, I wanted to thank Mary openly for that. And uh, hopefully we can find a routine where if I can post two a day, that would mean I need to do 14 or less, because if there's too many of them, then the whole day kind of gets jumbled for me. And I don't want to forget and then get into the next week and I can't post any more from that week. So whatever, we'll figure it out. But um, uh, that's Mary and thank you for that. So here we are, uh, verse 5, 5. Go ahead and read it one more time so that... Uh, okay, for of this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a man as an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Okay, there you go. There is an emphasis here which is lacking in the translation. It says, for knowing you recognize. The NIV gives a good sense by saying what he just said, for of this you can be sure. Okay, now when he says, for knowing you recognize, that's almost Paul giving a Hebraism. We'll see a couple of them, I think at least one in Sunday's sermon where a word will be repeated. It's called an infinitive, and it'll say, knowing you will know, or studying you should study, or something like that. You know, uh, dying he shall die. It's an emphatic way of saying something in the Hebrew, and that's kind of what he's doing here, except it's in the Greek. The NIV gives a good sense by saying, of this or for of this you can be sure. It is at once a warning and a statement of great clarity. It is something that should be obvious on the surface to all who contemplate what will be said. After this, we're given a direct list of personalities which concerns what will then be explained. These are fornicators, unclean people, and covetous men. The last are then explained as idolaters. The list corresponds to those just mentioned in verses 3 and 4, which we, uh, did we do both of those? Yes, this is 5. Okay, so we did both of them. He first warned that such sins not even be named among us. Then he says that such people have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. People who live in such a manner as described here have misplaced priorities. They look to the things of the world and not to the things of God. Until they come to God through Christ, they remain apart from his forgiveness and from his salvation. Having said this, a verse such as this, here it is, when taken out of context, can be used to demonstrate a loss of salvation is possible. However, Paul will show that this is not the case as he continues with his words. In a similar warning, which is found in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul followed up the warning with the words, and such were some of you, but you were washed 
but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. It's funny, here we're talking about it, and then it's in the commentary. So he uh, he uh, will say something, he'll get people scared, and then he'll say, don't worry. You have been cleansed. You have been washed. I know that some of you are still stuck in this. We'll get you through this if you just listen to my doctrine, okay? That is what Paul does. He wants people to be on the alert, you know? I mean, there's no excuse for people acting in an inappropriate manner. But at the same time, he understands that people act in an inappropriate manner. And so he says, Christ is the cure. You have been freed from that. 2 Corinthians 5.19, you're no longer being imputed sin. You need to continue to work out your salvation with trembling and fear, okay? That doesn't mean that you need to work out your being saved in trembling and fear. It means work out the salvation you have been granted in trembling and fear. There's a difference between the two. You're not working to be saved. You are working in your salvation. You're working out your salvation, okay? This is what Paul does. He sets you up with the bad stuff, and then he gives you the good, and then he tells you how to live in that good way okay so the actions are past and they indicate i'm sorry uh yes you were washed you were sanctified you were justified the actions are past tense and they indicate the complete nature of the sanctification and justification of the individual although it will be stated differently here in ephesians the same thought carries through once one is saved they remain saved from that moment, they are granted an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's Paul's words, in the kingdom of Christ and God. Once, once you have believed, you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Aravon, which is the seal of your salvation, that can't be lost again, okay? God has guaranteed it. He has given his word. You got something, Burke? Oh, oh I'm okay. just thinking you put, I'll put 210, Ephesians 2.10 in there. Ephesians 2.10, let me read that, okay? I saw you looking in your Bible and knew you had something on your mind. Oh, yeah, for we are his workmanship, his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Exactly. So you've been saved. You've been cleansed of all these things. Now go about doing what you're supposed to do. Okay, so there you go with that. Um, the kingdom of Christ and God, the words here in Greek are to Christo ke to ke theo. The Christ and God. There is one article applied to both Christ and God, which perfectly demonstrates the oneness of the two. It is a consistent thought found throughout the New Testament that Jesus Christ is fully God. One must truly abuse Scripture to find a separation between God and Christ. They are one and the same. Life application. Each of us has set up idols in our hearts. We have been unclean and covetous at times as well. And yet, because of applying the blood of Christ to our lives, we are now washed clean and are considered pure before God the Father. Thank God for Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all impurity. What a wonderful God. What a great Savior. Um, when I was pulling up here earlier, I don't know if it was the first time or the second time, we had a catastrophe. Sunday, the, uh, the light in the bathroom went out. And so uh, Greg helped me. We had to pull down the lights, these round light bulbs with those stupid clips on them. And so I went down to Lowe's today on the way here to buy new light bulbs. And I went down there. I got them. I came back here. I put them in and it didn't work. The ballast is bad. Uh -oh. So I 
trying to take out the ballast and it leaks all over me. All this goo came out of the, so I had to go buy a new light fixture. Got that in. And um, uh, so either my first time up or my second time arriving, I was listening to Jesus speaking about the widow's two mites. And I thought that is a person that didn't covet anything. She had nothing and she gave away the very last of what she had. And Jesus acknowledged that. He said, this woman has given more than all of you. I'm telling you that, you know, when I hear that and you think about it, I mean, what do we give to the Lord? And I'm not talking, I please don't think I'm talking about giving money to the church. I'm talking about what do we give to the Lord? Do we give our time? I mean, do we spend our time thinking about God? Do we spend our time thinking about Jesus? Do we think about the cross? Uh, it, one of, it had to have been the first time because the second time, that's, he's at the, he's now in the Garden of Gethsemane. So it had to be the first time I pulled up. The second time he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he is sweating drops of blood. And I'm thinking this in my mind as I'm listening to it and I'm thinking, he gave everything as well. I mean, he gave everything to redeem us. Are we, what are we giving to the Lord? Uh, you know, if you want to give to the church, give to the church. If you want to give to, you know, a mission, give to a mission, whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about everything. Every single thing that you are as a human being, you should be giving to the Lord in thought, in word, in deed, in thanks, in gratitude, in prayer, you know, just... Uh, Paul said, you people, I wanted this for you, but you gave Gave your heart first to him. Your heart first. Then, then you could follow through with your gifts. Give your heart to the Lord. Give yeah. everything you are. And then, yeah, then give your gifts. That's absolutely right. If he's got your heart, he's got everything else. Yeah. Since so, the, the early parts of when I, I came to Christ, Linda and I came to Christ, it uh, seemed apparent to me that it, it's not, you know, it's like, okay, I've got a $100 in my pocket. I'm going to give the church $99. It's like, and that's, all well and good, but it all boils down to motive, right? And your just the motive. Motive as to why you're doing. It. Yeah, it's like you know, it's like okay, well, is this in faith? I'll give you a dollar and I'll keep ninety nine. But Lord, I know that this is going to like you know, it, 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 it there's a, it, it's, it's, it's in your heart. It, it's like it, it's that's not, right. It's got to come from wallet, the heart. It's not even your time punch card. It's like you know, it's just basically. Why are you doing this? That's right. Your existence. Are you, are you gaining? Are you trying to score points? Or are you just doing it because you just love Christ? And Absolutely. What would I do without you? What would I do without you? And you know what? I, I had somebody today, I just before we opened, I was reading his email, and he said, I took your uh, advice, and um, uh, I've been listening to the audio Bible, and he says, I'm already up to numbers. He was so proud. And then he said something. The way he said it, I actually laughed out loud from it. I can't remember what he said. But once again, if you can get an audio Bible, you can download them for free. If you got, you know, I don't know how to make them work in your car. You know, they've got the little things you plug in and all that. But if you, mine are the CD type things. But anyway, if you can get an audio Bible, you're going to be inspired you're going to be inspired. Give your time and your heart and your life to the Lord. Okay, five, six, and then we're going to be done. Do we have time for it? Yes. No one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes down, comes on those who are disobedient. Okay, this one is almost the same, except this one says, upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, so the negatives which were set forth in the previous verses to include those mentioned towards the end of chapter 4, are being addressed here. Paul warns the Ephesians by saying, let no one deceive you with empty words. 
The word empty gives the thought of that which is void or worthless. There is no substance behind what is spoken. In other words, the warning is that some will come forward to say that those things which have been warned against are actually okay to engage in. As people come to you got oh okay I thought something happened to you no. all right all right as people come to Christ there is abs, there is almost inevitably a conflict which arises between their old walk and the new walk which they have chosen very few are immune to the tempting enticements which pull the old man back to the old ways there are those who have been friends for years that don't understand the new direction which has been taken, and they work to bring their wayward friend back into the fold of carnal life. I remember that very well in my own life. They will use words which are intended to convince the young and immature believer that it's okay to indulge in those things, but such arguments are, as Paul says, empty words. There is no true substance behind them. Rather, it is because of these things, Paul says, his words, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul wrote the wrath of God in Romans 1. He wrote of the wrath of God in Romans 1, explaining what brings it about. The things he mentions here in Ephesians are a part of that process. It is because of participating in these things that the world is judged. And through disease, I'm sorry, and this judgment follows two distinct lines. The first is judgment in this world through diseases, conflicts, which lead to physical harm or death, and the like. The second judgment is that of being cast away for all eternity from the presence of God. The lake of fire is the ultimate end for all sons of disobedience. Okay, if you don't know what I was referring to in Romans 1, if you haven't read it, go read Romans 1. I think it starts in about verse 18. Um, and Paul explains how God's wrath is raised. Yeah, we got time. Let's just read this really quickly. Um, uh, yes, I'll start with verse 16 just to set the stage, but it is verse 18. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Okay, that's the righteousness of God. Now he goes from the righteousness of God to the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That one there covers a lot of bases. Suppression of the truth of the word, uh, for example, in the flood of Noah. The flood of Noah can be proven true in the world record today, the geologic record. Okay, if you don't believe me, go watch Is Genesis History. He's got about 50 videos or more online, and he will show you where they can, without any doubt at all, you can be convinced that it is possible for the global flood to have taken place. And not only is it possible, it answers what they cannot answer. Okay, there was a global flood, and it was not that long ago, and it was worldwide. It was cataclysmic, and it was just the way the Bible describes it. But people suppress that knowledge in order. Uh, one of the things that I don't think was on Genesis is Genesis history, but it may have been. I was watching one creation show, and they have um, bags where they will bag things called anomalies. These are scientists. They will be digging, and they'll find something, and they'll say, this is an anomaly. In other words, it doesn't fit what we believe. Mm -hmm. And so they will bag it and they'll put it in a room. 
and it just stays there. It's got a tag on it. Nobody ever looks at it. That room apparently is so full in one of the universities that it's overflowing because it doesn't fit their paradigm of what they believe. They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. That's just one example that can be done with a million different things, but that is one of them, okay? So they suppress the truth because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. We know that a man and a woman were created as man and woman. We know that they were created in order to be paired with one another, but we suppress the truth of that, okay? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. We can know about God just by looking at creation. Aristotle did it. You can do it too. Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are, as Paul says, they are with excuse. They have no excuse because they know that what they are following is a lie, purposefully following a lie. Okay, I'm going to just go down to verse 23 and I'm going to finish because I want to get done with this verse uh, in Ephesians. But because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but become became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, just like the scholars in universities, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. He's actually talking about people that bow to idols like they do in Thailand or like they do in Japan. You know, you've got these idols and people go pray to these things and think they're going to do something. Well, we do that with our own smarts. Professors all over the world make idols of their own thinking, okay? An idol is an idol. If it takes your mind away from God and what he has shown in the world, then you're following an idol. So Mother Nature. Mother Nature, yes. Okay, verse 24 down to um, uh, the end of the chapter talks about what happens after you've reached that state. Once you've reached that state of suppression and you've started to do these things, then he starts talking about all of the perverse things that human beings do. Okay, they substitute the natural for the unnatural use. Speaking of, you know, men with men, women with women. He talks about exactly that. He goes all the way through the level of depravity that man experiences because he is unwilling to be obedient to God. Go read that today. Take some time to think about what Paul is saying. We'll get back into here. I just talked about people getting chucked into the lake of fire, and we're going to be done just on time, maybe a couple minutes early. As an apostle... Paul is showing that these vain arguments are exactly that. They are empty and without any substance behind them. Just like these people, that they've got this argument that it's okay to do this perverse thing. They know that it's not, but they keep suppressing the knowledge of God until they no longer have any sense about him at all. And this isn't just people that are out in the world that you may come in contact with. This is people in the church people in churches all over the world that are doing perverse things, and they're saying it's okay. It is not okay, and it is never okay. The Catholic Church is literally filled with people like this. We've got that, I just read one, somebody in Texas, I think, you know, Bible class, and he's doing things with children for the past how many years, and he got caught, and he's being sentenced and all that. It's just unbelievable how people will suppress the knowledge. They know what they're doing is wrong, but they're going to suppress it because they want to act on their perversions, okay? As an apostle, Paul is showing that these vain arguments are exactly that. They're without any, they're empty and without any substance behind them. The warnings of Scripture to include the apostolic warnings, which are now recorded in the Bible, are given to direct us away from that which is harmful. 
and which brings about the wrath of God and towards that which is pleasing to him. This is why we study the Bible. This is why we meditate on the Bible. This is why when we do something wrong, we should have that inner thing inside of us saying, I did wrong, I'm going to acknowledge it, and I'm going to try to not do it again. Because if not, the avenue that you are taking is suppressing. And once you start suppressing, it becomes easier next time to suppress it, and easier next time. And pretty soon, you've suppressed that part of your existence, and along comes another one, and, you'll, and then you'll be into the Romans 1 category. If you're a Christian, you're not going to lose your salvation, but you will be walking a very dangerous path. You will be walking into a world which will eat you alive. You'll end up dying of some disease you shouldn't have died of or getting shot by some angry husband or whatever is going to happen to you because you didn't pay heed. You suppressed the knowledge instead of saying, Lord, I, I, I know I shouldn't do this. Give me strength. Give me wisdom. Help me. All right, just keep talking to the Lord. I don't care. Well, it doesn't matter anymore. People have things in their ears and they're talking. And so you don't know if they're insane or if they're talking to somebody. But it doesn't matter if people think you're crazy. Just, you know, just talk to the Lord. Okay? He's there. He's real. Talk to him. Life application. You're laughing about So What are you laughing about? What you said. Me? What did I say? Looking with the thing. You don't know if they're crazy or not. Oh, whatever. Okay. Uh, Life application. To ignore the warnings of Scripture can lead only to a sad end. There will be trials and pains in this life, and there will be either judgment and condemnation for non-believers or a loss of rewards for believers. Stand firm on the word of God and do not be deceived by vain words which are contrary to the word of God. Speaking of um, Brent's sermon out at the uh, Cowboy Church in Henrietta, Texas, he said that he used, he said, I used to think, I, I may be missing the focus of what he said, but it's basically, I used to think that now that I'm a Christian, I'm not going to face any more judgment. He says, uh-huh. boy, I was wrong about that. He says, once I got to 1 Corinthians 3, I realized I've got to stand before the Lord and I'm going to be judged for what I've done as a Christian. Okay. It doesn't end when you become a Christian. It begins in a new direction. Yes. John 3. John 3. John 3. 36. This wrath of God is like the sword of Oh, Yeah. Back and forth over you. Yep. Yep, that's absolutely right. John 3 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath, very good, the wrath of God abides on him. Absolutely. That's just absolutely confirming what Jesus said right there. So, um, you see it's raining. Thank you, Lord. I love the rain. We've got these afternoon showers coming lately, and pretty soon they're going to end, and I'm gonna, I just get miserable when it doesn't rain. What? Oh, I am. I, I just love the rains. It saves all that work. You don't have to go out and water all the things that you've planted for your beautiful wife and whatever. So, uh, we got time to pray, and we're going to turn and be done in just a second here. Let me put that away. This goes here. And... Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for this word, which keeps us on the straight path. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. It is the hope of glory of Jesus Christ in a written form so that we can have that hope refreshed in us from moment to moment. Lord, give us wisdom to stay in this word and to pursue Christ from this word all the days of our lives. Because Without this, we're so easily led astray. Help us to just contemplate your word and to talk with others about it and to share it and to implore others to study it and to be a part of it in their lives. Lord, may it be so, so that we honor you and glorify you in this way. 
you are worthy of all of our time, all of our effort, all of our thought and devotion and everything that we are. Help us to live that life out. To your glory we pray. Amen. Okay, I'll turn this off and we'll get the folks online. Say goodbye to them. Don't pick up that piece of paper. Need to remind you. I know, I got to do something. Hang on, where am I going? Break, break. Okay. Oh, I didn't know. I need.